like to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. A familiar story. A very good one. The Word of God reads, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we turn our focus and attention to the preaching of your word, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds so as to not only hear your word, but to be utterly convinced by it, and that by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, we would trust you at your word. Do that in us now, we pray. Amen. Well, as we enter back into the Gospel of Luke, what had happened at Peter's house was the topic of everyone's conversations. Many were there to witness the claim made by the carpenter named Jesus. He was not only a miracle worker, but the eternal Son of God who was able to forgive sins. The series of healings leading up to that day in Capernaum testified that Jesus came not to heal the body, but rather to heal the soul. And so you'll remember before, in the story before from the one we just read, that before the watching crowd, as the stretcher was lowered down through the ceiling, Jesus spoke the most compassionate words a broken man could hear. Your sins are forgiven. And you'll recall the, the outrage by the scribes and the Pharisees. And in a way, rightly so. For it was a claim that no prophet of God nor any man of God had made. Who do you think you are? Only God can do such things. But that you may know that the Son of Man is able to forgive sins. In other words, that you may know that the Son of Man is the Son of God. That broken man who had come in through the roof, picked up his mat, and walked right through the front door. But most importantly, justified before God. And it was an incredible scene. We're told, if you look back with me in chapter 5, verse 26, that amazement seized them all. And that room that was packed full of people, they, they glorified God. And Luke describes for us there that they were struck with wonder and they began saying to one another, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so what took place in that house was surely the talk of the town. But while it appeared that the whole town of Capernaum had gathered in that house, there was a man who wasn't there. He was an outsider. But more so, he was preoccupied 
with more important things. You see, rather than going to Jesus to hear Him preach, He was busy at work. Not far from that rejoicing crowd, He was collecting money. And that on behalf of Israel's greatest oppressor, Rome, and of course Himself. He was a publican, otherwise known as a tax collector. And as such, He was one of the most repulsed men in all the land. His name was Levi. And if he lived up to the reputation of his name, he would have been a man who would have brought people together in harmony. Because that's what Levi means. But there was nothing harmonious about this man's life because he was a deceiver. Tax collectors were despised and vilified among the Jews because they were cheaters. They were more worthy of scorn than even the Roman soldiers. You see, tax collectors, they, they got into the business by purchasing the authorization or a permit to collect taxes from the Roman emperor. And so these tax businesses or these tax franchises were available for sale, but through, through an auction. And it was granted to the person with the highest bid. And thus the winning bidder had now the right to collect taxes from the Jewish people for the Roman government. But there was an unspoken agreement with Rome that they could charge additional fees, other miscellaneous taxes, and that for their own self-profit. Now, we know a thing or two about additional fees and taxes. You see, not too long ago, I went with my family and Pastor Dave's family, and we went to Yogurtland. You're probably aware of the process there. It is self-serve. You take a cup, you choose what flavor you like, you dispense it into your cup, you scoop an assortment of toppings. I like to choose uh, Fruity Pebbles and Mochi Balls and Captain Crunch. Uh, and then you place your concoction on a scale. You might be thinking, Pastor Dan, you have diabetes. Should you be eating that? Well, that's not really the point today. And the teenager in front of you will tell you the cost. But then there will be a little message on the payment screen right in front of you asking for a service tip. This teenager did nothing. I did everything. Again, don't be offended if you ever worked at Yogurtland. I understand. I understand what Yogurtland is trying to do. I understand. Make, make a little extra money. No hard feelings as I press no thanks. Now... I don't know why that's, that's funny. I'm sure y'all do the same thing. It's one thing if the government of Rome does it. But it's another thing. Listen, when your own Jewish kinsmen, they do it. Imagine if during today's Thanksgiving meal that you go, you take your plate, and you go through the line, and you put all the food onto your plate. And just as you're about to leave, our brother Johnny says, wait, stop, wait. There's a fee for the cranberry sauce, and there's a fee for the gravy, an additional condiment fee of $3. Now, $3, that's not a lot, but you would probably look at him with disgust, right? And possibly go home complaining because it offends you differently. It's a more spiteful transgression because it's coming from someone from your own church that a person who is supposed to serve you is instead using you for some sort of gain. 
And this is how the people of Israel felt towards tax collectors. There was great disdain for them in the, in the public eye, and so they didn't like them. Now, you need to also know that there were two kinds of tax collectors, general tax collectors who collected property tax and income tax, and there wasn't much manipulating for those who worked in that field. But the other kind, they collected taxes on imported and exported goods. And they taxed virtually everything that passed by their trade route in which they were stationed on their, from their tax booth. Tolls on roads, taxes on animals, taxes on any cart or wagon with an axle, tariffs on letters and parcels, taxes on any goods. It was extortion. They were, in essence, professional thieves. And because of it, they were enormously rich. Rich at the expense of their own Jewish people. And so they were regarded worse than enemies. Well, what can be worse than an enemy? A traitor. Traitor. Tax collectors were traitors of the highest order for they had no sense of dignity or shame for what they did. Selling your own people out for, for personal gain. They were heartless crooks. Well then, while the town was gathered in the house to hear Jesus, Luke chapter 5, verse 27 tells us that here was Levi sitting in his tax booth. We find a tax collector, and that of the worst kind, by the name of Levi, situated along the trade route of the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's three things here that I want us to see in this pretty short narrative. And number one, it's this. Jesus' grace. Jesus' grace. Number two, Levi's great feast. And number three, the grumbling of the self-righteous. And you can see all three of those there easily in the story. Well, what we need to know firstly is that this is first and foremost a story about grace. Not so much a great feast, nor about grumbling, but this narrative is about God's grace. As we discovered in the prior episode, that Jesus is able to forgive sins the following question is this, whose sins does he forgive? And the answer is, that of sinners. Even the worst of sinners. You see, the candidates of his grace are the despicable, the vile, and the unworthy. There's a hymn that I hope we can sing as a church in which the chorus sings, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. And that's what this story is about. This, this afternoon, our Savior wants us to know about His grace. And He does so after, after having dealt with one sinner in the paralytic, and now in another, in a tax collector. Luke begins in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at, at the tax booth. Well, I want you to notice that Luke, he makes clear here that it's Jesus and not Levi who makes this initial encounter. That it, it was Jesus who went out from that house who, who then saw this tax collector. In other words, it wasn't Levi coming to look for Jesus, but rather Jesus looking for Levi, searching for Levi. And the reason why we need to make a big deal about this is because Luke, the writer of this Gospel, makes a big deal about this too. 
is because I want you to notice there in verse 27, the word saw, the word saw. The word saw there isn't just the regular word for seeing, but it means to gaze intently upon. It means to fix one's eyes and to behold. In other words, Jesus came out of that house with intention, fixing His attention on Levi with the eyes of His grace. All while Levi was in his state of depravity, sitting in his tax booth. And what I can't help but notice here is that Jesus comes to Levi, not only to the worst of sinners, but while he's in his worst state, sitting in his tax booth. He doesn't come to him while he's sitting in a church service, nor in some kind of confessional. But he comes while he's sitting in his tax booth in the midst of his scandal. Well, why does Jesus do that? I mean, how come Jesus doesn't wait for Levi to come to his senses and to clean up a little bit, get his act together? Why does Jesus come to Levi in his most wretched state? And I think the answer is, is to show us that, that he truly has the power to change and transform a person. That he's able. You see, Jesus, he does his best work when sinners are in their worst condition. The lower the sinner is, the greater glory he gets. And isn't that, beloved, the principle of the gospel so that no one can boast? And I wonder this afternoon if there are any of you here in this room feeling that way. That you feel yourself to have hit rock bottom. In which you feel utterly hopeless. Well, what do you need to know? You need to know that His grace is never out of reach. Maybe it's that you feel yourself to have been trying and trying. I need, I, I need to get better. So you're trying to get better. And it feels like the more that you try, the more you fall. Well, His grace is for those who are at the bottom. His grace is for those who are at the end of themselves. And His grace is never out of reach. Never out of reach to take hold of you. That any sinner who comes to Him, no matter how hard they've fallen, no matter what condition they find themselves in, He is able. And more than able, He's willing that's what Jesus said to the leper a few stories prior. The leper said, make me clean, he cried out. And Jesus said, I will. I'll do it. Now even before Jesus went out of that house, His grace was working in Levi. Notice His conversion appears somewhat abrupt. Just like that, this vile tax collector leaves everything. Verse 27, and He said to him, Follow me and leaving everything. He rose and followed him. Notice, no details are given here. No filling in of the empty space. Well, how did this tax collector come under the conviction to follow Jesus? What did he know of him? How did he even hear of him? Well, we do know a few things. It might help us to shape what may have happened to this man. As a tax collector, Levi was forbidden to enter into the synagogue. For it was a place in which the religious went. Not 
not the publican nor the prostitute. The Jewish Talmud's uh, manual on what was normative of ancient Judaism barred tax collectors from the house of worship. And it's because Jews were not to associate with, with such traitors. And furthermore, it stated that it was righteous, it was actually righteous to lie and to deceive a tax collector because that is what these professional extortioners, this is what they deserve. But not only unable to enter the synagogue, but tax collectors were unable to make it past the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Which means Levi wasn't allowed to enter into the area in which every Jew had had the privilege to access. And again, because he was an unclean tax collector. He had to keep his distance. When Jesus taught that parable concerning the tax collector and the Pharisee, who both went to the temple to pray, remember it was the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank You that I'm not like other men. But remember where the tax collector was? He wasn't in the temple. But rather, Luke 18 says that he was he was standing afar off. And it's because he wasn't allowed in the temple. There was a significant distance between where the tax collector stood and the sanctuary as he was prohibited from approaching. Well, how then did this tax collector come under the knowledge of God and His salvation? It could be. It could be that while stationed at his tax booth, as people came passing through and passing by, he began to hear word. Rumblings of a man's miracles. Snippets of his sermon. And soon a, a spiritual hunger began to develop inside of him. A growing desire to know who he was. And it's possible that he knew that Jesus was teaching that day in the house nearby. But he was not yet ready to abandon his sinful life. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is he worth giving up this life? Well, maybe it was that counting the cost, he, he chose to remain in his tax booth. But know that Jesus, by His grace, was drawing him. Jesus was already working in him even before Jesus went out to see him. And so when Jesus came, locking His gaze upon the sinner and then calling Levi to follow Me, there was no other way to respond but to respond in faith. Charles Wesley, he says, his chains fell off, his heart was free. He rose, went forth, and followed thee. I want you to notice that what happened to Levi that day in his tax booth has happened to every single one of us who are Christian. That the workings of his grace towards Levi is the same workings of His grace that have, that have occurred in us. Notice that, that before Levi ever decided to follow Jesus, that Jesus decided to make Him one of His. In other words, Levi was predestined for this. Jesus said to His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And you see, that electing love has been set on every Christian before the foundation of the world. This is true of everyone who comes to God through faith in Christ. That there is something that took place prior in ages past. 
that before any of us came to a decision, to the decision to be in relationship with God, God made the decision to be in relationship with us, those who trust in Christ. But you see, notice Jesus not only set His eyes on Levi, even before Levi knew, but He also called him. While there is a general call that is sent out to everyone, a gospel call to turn away from sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible speaks of another kind of call that is always effective, that never fails to draw a person to saving faith. And this is what Paul had in mind when he said in Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Well, what is this call? It is but the work of God's Spirit that convinces us of our sin, enlightens our minds, renews our will, persuades us, enables us to embrace Christ. It is a call from the Holy Spirit that always works. It is effectual. And this is what happened to Levi. Up until this point in his life, he was a man selfish and greedy for dishonest gain. Well, what changed? Well, what changed for him? His heart changed. His heart changed. By the Holy Spirit, he was regenerated in the inside. And thus, by the inward compulsion of the Spirit, when he heard the words from Jesus, follow me, Luke says in chapter 5, verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And so notice also that the call produced a response. Levi responded. He had to. From the Spirit's working, there was no way he wasn't. Well, how, how did he respond? Notice here, by leaving everything and following Him. There was a turning from and simultaneously a turning to. Well, how did he respond? In repentance and faith. By leaving his life of sin and by looking to Jesus. You see, in following Jesus, he couldn't bring his tax booth with him. He had to leave it behind, never to return. And you know, I wonder as I studied this passage, I, I wondered, I wondered if Levi was ever tempted to go back. Because you know, there was times when, when Peter, as we saw, Peter and the others, when they went back to fishing, but Levi, he couldn't. He couldn't go back to a life of cheating and extortion. And, and I think about what he must have felt later on when he found out that, that one of the disciples, Judas, when he was stealing from the, the offering bag that was meant to be used for the poor. And I think about what, what Levi must have felt seeing his old life in another disciple. A life of stealing from others. But you see, Levi was nothing like Judas. Not anymore. Uh, Levi, he remained faithful in that to the end. You see, when Luke tells us, notice in verse 28, that Levi left everything and followed Jesus, the verb there followed, the verb there followed is very telling. Because Luke, he, he describes it not as a one-time act or a decision that he made in the past or in some point in time. 
But rather, that verb there followed is an active participle, which means in grammar, it's a continuous action. There's a difference between he ran and he is running. Luke is very aware of who he's describing. You see, he knows Levi. And it's not just that he decided to follow Jesus in the past, but that he is ever and always following Jesus. In other words, Levi left everything to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. And we learn here what what it means to be a disciple. When God calls us to follow Christ, He calls us to a whole life of faith. And I think it's appropriate here for us to ask ourselves, are we, are we faithfully following Christ? As you decided to follow Him then, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe it was 20 years ago, are you following Him now? Or have you regressed? Back into a life of selfishness and pride. Back into a life sitting in the tax booth. I say look to His grace. If He's able to restore a wretched traitor in Levi, surely, surely He can do the same for you. And you may have noticed that I've been calling this tax collector by his former name. Now we all know his new name. His name's Matthew. His name's Matthew. And isn't it amazing that God would take one of the most despised people, the worst of sinners, and save him and make him a disciple. A disciple. And that he would go on to write the first gospel in the New Testament of Holy Scripture. You see, Matthew in our Bibles is written by a tax collector, by an extortioner, a cheater, a liar. What did Matthew have to keep reminding himself of? Of Jesus' grace. That while he was deep in his depravity, that Jesus came to him. That it was all of his grace. And you see, that's what his name means. Madit Yahu. Gift of Yahweh. And you see, the only thing that separates us from the rest of sinful humanity, Christian, is just that. It's His grace. Notice secondly here how Matthew then responds to the grace that he's been shown in Jesus. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. As Matthew entered into the joy of his salvation, he celebrated in no small way. And it's not that this feast was in his own honor, but rather this feast was in Jesus' honor. The glory went not to him, but to Christ. This wasn't a feast for Himself. But Luke says, He made Him a great feast. It was literally, literally, a Thanksgiving feast. And beloved, this is what the Christian life is. Being recipients of God's grace. It is a life of continual praise and thanksgiving. Of being filled with gratitude for the salvation He has graciously bestowed to us in Christ. You see, Matthew, he was so so overwhelmed. He was so overwhelmed with what Jesus had done for him that he gave a thanksgiving feast in his name. For years and for years, Matthew, he 
He knew only of a life of spiritual deadness, of soul starvation. And yet here, he was, he was now feasting with Christ, filled and satisfied to be found in Christ. I want you to listen to J.C. Ryle and what he says here in this passage. He says, Nothing can happen to a man which ought to be such an occasion of joy as his conversion. It is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. Beloved, there's no greater joy. There's no occasion of which there is any more joy which has taken place in every single Christian. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because what does it say then when there is an absence of joy and thanksgiving and gratitude in the Christian life? What does it say then when there is only discontentment and unhappiness and displeasure? We must then question the root cause. If we live our lives as if nothing good has happened to us, then it is not unreasonable to ask, have I received His grace? Has He called me? And has He changed me? Now, don't get me wrong, there are times, aren't there, that we as Christian believers go through a period where faith feels dry. Apathy sets in. We, we become indifferent. Well, we ask ourselves, well, why is that happening? It's really because of one thing. We are forgetting about His grace. And we tend to forget about His grace, Christian, when we deny ourselves of all the means of grace in which Jesus gives to us. His means of grace through His Word and through prayer, through fellowship. When we stop drinking from the fountain of grace, it is only natural that our souls get dry. We also forget about His grace when we live our Christian lives as more of a performance rather than a praise. And this was the problem of the Pharisees. Which is why there was never a rejoicing in them. No rejoicing over the paralytic there in the house before. No rejoicing over this tax collector. But for Matthew, he, he was the happiest man in the world. And that's so in surrendering everything. We can't miss that point here. It's as if he was the happiest man in the world and that in surrendering Everything. Uh, remember in the Gospel accounts when the rich young lawyer asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And what did Jesus say? In essence, he said, leave everything and follow me. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't because he had too many possessions. But more so, what's interesting is that when Matthew 
When Matthew records that story, he writes that the young man went away sorrowful. That he went away sorrowful. And I'm sure that as Matthew was writing his gospel, he's coming to that part of the story. It must have been a reminder for Matthew. He too was a rich man. And that Jesus had asked him to follow him. But for him in leaving everything, it's as if he gained everything and more. And there was no greater joy. It was such an opposite reaction. And notice what this retired tax collector does. He invites people. And he invites all the people in his cell phone contact list. But guess what? The people in his contact list are not the religious well-to-doers, but rather they are other tax collectors and probably prostitutes and swindlers and other sinners. He only knows the dregs of society. Yet he invites all of them to this great feast because they need to meet Jesus. They need to know Him. And you see, this is what happens when the grace of God has taken hold of our life. We begin to promote not ourselves, but Christ to the people, to the people that we know. And why? It's because for Matthew, having received his grace, he wanted his friends to receive it too. He knew what their souls needed, for he had been one of them. And as such, he, he, refused, he refused to go to heaven alone. This man who had just left Everything wanted nothing more than to acquaint his friends with the Savior. And what I love here about this story is that Jesus accepts the invitation. Jesus entered into Matthew's house now filled with the worst of men. And he didn't do so reluctantly like, oh, oh what am I going to do here? But he went gladly sharing food with them, speaking with them, laughing with them, engaging with them. The Holy Son of God was, as Luke says at the end of chapter 5, verse 29, reclining at the table with them, laying on His side, eating with them. What a sight to behold. A sight of His amazing grace. And beloved, that's a picture we can never lose from our minds. Church, how, how desperate are we for our friends and our loved ones, our family members, our co-workers? How desperate are we for them to meet Jesus? Where it's the natural reflex of our converted hearts to say, come, come, you need to meet Him. You need to see Him. You see, Matthew, in leaving everything, he had found the one greatest thing, the, the great treasure, the pearl of great price. He had found Jesus, rather, he'd been found by Jesus. And everyone he knew needed to have him. And so notice, notice the pattern that Matthew sets for us. Having been chosen, he is then called. And upon being called, he leaves everything to follow Jesus. But he isn't satisfied to follow him alone. You see, everyone must come with him. He tells everyone he knows that they too might follow Jesus. Beloved, does your spirit resemble that of this redeemed tax collector? 
Do we possess the pattern of his conversion? Notice that the story here, it doesn't end. Whether they were invited or they came unannounced, there were a group of people here refusing to join in on the celebration. While the unrighteous dined with Jesus, the self-righteous came to criticize him. Verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat with why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, if Jesus claimed to be who he was supposed to be, why was he eating with the dirtiest of all people, the unclean? You see, these Pharisees, they had a problem with the guest list. And remember that we were introduced to these pious zealots. They were separatists. They were devout. They were very devout. They were this seriously religious. Their objective was for the sake of purity, holiness. But the means of salvation in their minds was not salvation by grace through faith, but it was salvation by segregation. To have nothing to do with that which was unclean and the, and the common, but only the clean and the holy. And they went beyond the law and they formed strict additional rules about how to maintain purity and holiness. Purity and holiness in regards to places and objects and people and food. And so everything that went on at, at Matthew's house party was horribly offensive to them. In their view, Jesus had defiled Himself in the worst way. Sitting down and eating was a symbol of close fellowship. And if people in the likes of tax collectors and prostitutes and swindlers and cheaters, if they were unallowed in the synagogue, then surely no right man would, would sit down and eat with them. It was to share in their sin. It was to become spiritually impure. It was to indicate friendship and full acceptance. And so Jesus had not only spoken blasphemous words inside of that first house where He had healed the paralytic, but here in the second house, he was utterly defiling himself. Don't you realize how unclean and how unholy these wretched sinners are? Why are you with them? You need to get as far away from them. You see now, it's here that our, that our definition of holiness is challenged. For those of us who think that holiness simply means to be separate, to be set apart. You know, one of the problems in the church is, is its understanding of holiness. We tend to think that holiness is about separation. But rather, holiness is about likeness to Jesus. And there's a difference. Holiness is not just being set apart from something, but rather being set apart to Christ. It's a conforming into the image of God's Son. And separation from sin is the result or the consequence of that likeness. And you see, there was nothing unholy about what Jesus was doing in eating with tax collectors and sinners. He was utterly holy. Well, how did Jesus respond to the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes? You see, Jesus, He agrees with one of their premises. They said that he, was, that he was eating with sinners. True enough. I give you that. 
but far from being contaminated by their sin. Jesus was restoring them. Look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, this is really the moment in which the story has been building. Jesus tells us who He is and what He came to do. Why He left the splendors of heaven to come to sinful humanity. He did not come to save the righteous. He didn't come to save those who don't need Him, but to those who desperately do. Messed up, broken down, law-breaking, scandalous sinners. And Jesus' words, I'm sure, must have hit Luke a little bit differently. It's because He Himself was a doctor. But not the kind in which sinners needed. You see, Jesus is the true doctor. The only physician for our souls. And He comes to save those who are sick and dying in their souls. And in Himself is the ultimate cure. Well, why was Jesus mixing Himself in this crowd consisting in the worst of sinners to heal them. That's what a physician does. He spends time with sick people. And rather than getting infected by their sin, Jesus had the power to make them well. And the Gospel is this, that He offers this very same treatment to us. But in order to receive it, we have to accept His diagnosis. You see, as long as we keep insisting that we are righteous, we will never see our need for the Gospel cure. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They thought themselves to be well, but instead they were the most sick. Non-Christian, how are you feeling? How are you spiritually feeling? The answer is not so well. And the answer is rather you are dying for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is His gift. The gift of His grace. In Jesus Christ who came down to us and as we learned, who bore our sicknesses and our diseases upon the cross and substituting our sin for His life. He was raised from the grave. And He now calls sinners just like Levi, just like yourself, just like me, to leave everything and to follow Him. To leave your life of sin. And to place your trust in Christ. And so if you're not a Christian, come. Come to the house of feasting where Jesus is. And dine with Him. Dine with Him in fellowship. Embrace Him as your Savior, as your physician, and He will save your soul. Well, Christian, how are you doing? Do you feel like you're beginning to get sick again? You see, we must all keep coming to Jesus. Not just the non-Christian, but we must all keep coming to Jesus. We need to be following Him. That means continuing to trust Him for His grace. You see, this is, what, this is exactly what Matthew did. He followed Him for the rest of His life. 
And church, so are we to do for the rest of our lives. To continue to trust Him and to continue to follow Him. And again, Christian, you feel like you're beginning to get sick again. Come to Him for His grace. Let's pray. Gracious God and Savior, would we, in like manner of this tax collector, follow Christ and follow Christ for all of our lives. And we need Your grace. Help us to depend on it and not upon ourselves. You have spoken to us yet again of what we have in the Savior who came to us who are cheaters and liars and scandals and to save us from our sins, who forgives the wretched and the lowly, Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting about the gospel of grace, for neglecting the grace that You've shown us in Christ. Would we turn and repent and look again and look afresh to Jesus. And as we contemplate the cross of Jesus as we're about to sing, would we see the very mercy and grace that You have so lavished upon us. In the name of our Savior, who bids us to come, we pray. Amen.